Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI-HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's December 2nd. The Monroe Doctrine was issued on this day in 1823. That makes it sound like somebody published a document that said the Monroe Doctrine up at the top, and it was a published piece of writing. Really, it was that President James Monroe gave his annual address to Congress. And in that address, he described some foreign policy decisions, and that came to be called the Monroe Doctrine. These policy decisions were also heavily influenced by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, who advocated not only for what these policies said, but also for them to exist at all. This whole thing grew out of Europe's colonization of the Americas, which is where the United States came from. A lot of these American colonies had then become independent from Europe. So the United States was independent from Britain. A whole collection of Latin American colonies had become independent from Spain in the years leading up to this. France had sold a lot of its North American territory to the United States and so on. At the time, the Russian Empire still controlled what's now Alaska, and there were worries that Russia would try to take over more territory outside what it already controlled. So the United States was concerned, concerned about Russia, concerned about European nations recolonizing the Americas. Britain actually had a lot of the same worries as the United States did about Russia, Spain, and France. And initially, Britain had proposed that Britain and the United States issue a joint statement 
And that's one of the ways that John Quincy Adams played a part in all of this. He thought that a joint statement would make the United States look like a hanger-on, with Great Britain being the one doing all the work and making all the decisions, and the United States just going along with whatever it was. So in this address before Congress, James Monroe articulated three main ideas. The first was that the world had two spheres of influence. The Americas were their own sphere, outside of the European sphere of influence. The Americas were also not up for further colonization by European powers, and the United States would not interfere in the internal matters of other nations, including maintaining neutrality when it came to wars in Europe. The Monroe Doctrine did not, though, include anything to deter the United States' westward expansion through North America. When Monroe made this speech, though, the United States didn't really have the military might to enforce what the Monroe Doctrine was saying. And while other nations didn't really try to test it, the response from some of the world's other leaders was somewhere between dismissive and annoyed because the United States was basically saying, you're not welcome here without actually having the means to keep other people out. The points articulated in this address became known as the Monroe Doctrine by the 1850s, and they continued to influence American foreign policy for decades after that. President Theodore Roosevelt further built on the Monroe Doctrine in his annual messages to Congress in 1904 and 1905, saying that it wasn't just that the Americas were not open to colonization by Europe, but that also the United States had a responsibility to defend those nations of the Western Hemisphere. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat for her research work on today's show and to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for a trial that some places describe as political, but others describe as criminal. Depends on who you ask. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Hey, y'all, I'm Eves. 
and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast for people interested in the big and small moments in history. The day was December 2nd, 1984. Late at night, a gas leak accident at the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant in Bhopal, India, caused what was considered the worst industrial disaster in history. The Union Carbide Plant at Bhopal was built for the manufacture of Seven, S-E-V-I-N, a commonly used pesticide. In 1984, the plant was manufacturing Seven at a reduced production capacity because demand for pesticides was low. The plant was slated to be shut down in 1984, but until then, it continued to operate with safety equipment and procedures that were below standard. Around 11 p.m. on December 2nd, a couple of employees at the plant noticed the pressure increasing inside a storage tank, but they didn't think much of it. The instruments often malfunctioned, so they assumed the readings were inaccurate. But soon, workers found a leak of methyl isocyanate and began to feel its effects. Methyl isocyanate is a highly flammable liquid used in the production of pesticides that evaporates quickly when exposed to air. It's highly toxic to humans with short-term exposure. They reported the leak to a methyl isocyanate supervisor, but he said that he would address the issue after tea. Nobody looked into the leak until about 12.40 a.m. on December 3rd. By that point, the pressure and temperature in the tank had increased to dangerous levels and a number of safety measures were out of commission. The vent gas scrubber that was designed to neutralize toxic discharge from the system was deactivated. A faulty valve allowed water to enter the tank and mix with methyl isocyanate. And a refrigeration unit that cooled storage tanks containing methyl isocyanate had been disconnected. Among other safety issues, the Bhopal plant did not have a computer system to monitor operations and alert staff to leaks like other operations did. Management relied on worker senses and physical reactions to determine that there was a methyl isocyanate leak. Around 1 a.m., a safety valve gave out and set a plume of methyl isocyanate gas into the air. The gas spread through the air across the city of Bhopal. In 1984, around 800,000 people lived in Bhopal. The plant was very close to the Bhopal railway station and close to two large hospitals. It was surrounded by densely populated towns. People woke up to symptoms of exposure like coughing, stomach pain, vomiting, and eye irritation. Pulmonary edema was the cause of death in many cases. People also died from choking. There is no antidote for methyl isocyanate, but sodium thiosulfate was given to people in the mistaken belief that hydrogen cyanide was poisoning people. The exact number of deaths in the immediate aftermath of the disaster is hard to pin down, but it was likely somewhere between 2,500 and 8,000 deaths, and an estimate of 15,000 people died over the years. Many people developed permanent disabilities and chronic respiratory conditions. Short-term and long-term effects of exposure included anorexia, impaired memory and reasoning, increased chromosomal abnormalities, decreased lung function, and increased pregnancy loss and infant mortality. Hundreds of thousands of people were injured by exposure to methyl isocyanate. Investigations after the disaster also found that staff at the plant had been cut, tank alarms were not functioning, and operators had limited knowledge of equipment in the plant. 
and tank E610, the one that leaked, held 42 tons of methyl isocyanate, which was above the recommended capacity. Union Carbide agreed to a settlement of $470 million, but little money was given to the victims of the disaster. Union Carbide maintained that the disaster was the result of an act of sabotage. The company shut down operations at the plant after the disaster, but chemicals that were dumped at the plant have leaked into and contaminated local water supplies. The water is still affected by contamination today. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any insight on an accent or a pronunciation spoken in the show today, feel free to send us a kind note on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Our email address is thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back tomorrow. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that lives in the past, the present, and the future, though mostly in the past. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about one of the first international book tours in history, the time when Charles Dickens brought one of his most popular stories to one of his least favorite countries. The day was December 2nd, 1867. British author Charles Dickens began his first American reading tour at Tremont Temple in Boston, Massachusetts. Several hundred people attended the sold-out show, and many more would have gladly paid the $2 admission had there been more seats to go around. One especially disappointed fan was fellow author Henry James, who noted glumly that it had been, quote, impossible to get tickets. Two other writers had better luck than James, as both Ralph Waldo Emerson 
and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow managed to score seats at the show. Most of Dickens' performances lasted about two hours. He would open with a 90-minute reading, pause for a brief intermission, and then wrap up with a second, shorter reading. For his first show in Boston, Dickens closed with a selection from his novel The Pickwick Papers, but the main event was a reading of A Christmas Carol. The famous story had been published in England 24 years earlier and was an immediate hit with Victorian readers. However, the book had failed to find an audience in the United States, partly because Dickens had criticized the country during his first visit in 1842. He was appalled by slavery and found Americans to be selfish and ill-mannered. On his return to Europe, he published a scathing travelogue and then followed it up with a brutal satire of the country in his next novel. This ensured that most Americans liked Dickens about as much as he liked them. The one exception to the author's distaste for the U.S. was Boston. After spending a month in the city during his first visit, Dickens declared that, quote, Boston is what I'd like the whole United States to be. It's no surprise, then, that he chose the city as the first stop of his U.S. tour in 1867. Luckily for him, the 25 years since his last visit had cooled the anger of American readers, and he was met by an enthusiastic crowd at every public appearance. Dickens began performing public readings in Great Britain in 1853. For the first five years, the readings were done strictly to raise money for charity, but they proved so popular that the author started doing them for profit in 1858. It's worth noting that reading tours were unusual for the time, with Dickens being the first major author to perform his own works in public. His publishers were eager to repeat the success of the European readings in the United States. It took a bit of convincing, but in the end, they persuaded Dickens to return to America for a four-month reading tour. It likely helped that the author earned more from these performances than from his actual writing. Another reason Dickens agreed to the tour was that he just enjoyed performing. And make no mistake, these were definitely dramatic performances. He didn't just stand on stage and read aloud from a book. Instead, the readings were like one-man shows, where the author would do different voices, gestures, and physical expressions to bring the various characters to life. He even rewrote certain passages from his books to make them better suited for live performance. He wasn't on an empty stage, either. Dickens used the same props as he did in England, a big maroon backdrop, a series of gas lamps, and a custom-built waist-high desk that had a block for Dickens to rest his elbow on and a rail near the bottom for him to rest his foot. He also held whichever book he was reading from, but that was really more of a prop. Dickens had prepared so extensively for the tour that he knew most of the material by heart, he reportedly prepped for shows by practicing in front of a mirror for several hours. Despite all this planning, the shows weren't static. The more Dickens performed a certain piece, the more he would tinker with it by adding, subtracting, or reordering the material. 
A Christmas Carol is a great example of this refining process, as it was one of his most frequent and most popular readings. It takes about three hours to read the whole story as written, but by the time Dickens returned to Boston, he had cut that time in half. The copy he used for his performances shows the extensive edits he made to bring the piece down to 90 minutes. Tellingly, the changes emphasize dialogue and characters while drastically reducing the role of the narrator. Among the deletions are all 37 times when the narrator refers to himself as I, me, or my, as well as the 18 instances when the narrator directly addresses the reader as you. These deliberate changes suggest that Dickens wanted to minimize his own voice so that the audience instead could be caught up in the story itself. The tactic seemed to work well, too. After the first public reading of A Christmas Carol at the Tremont Temple in Boston, Dickens' agent knew they had made the right call in returning to America. He described the audience reaction, writing, quote, When at last the reading of the carol was finished and the final words had been delivered, a dead silence seemed to prevail, a sort of public sigh, as it were, only to be broken by cheers and calls, the most enthusiastic and uproarious. But Dickens' thoughtful performance wasn't the only reason the crowd was so receptive. The message of the story seemed to strike a chord as well. In fact, many scholars believe Charles Dickens had a lasting influence on Christmas traditions in New England. By the 1860s, most of the country had gotten on the same page about how to celebrate Christmas, but in Massachusetts, there were still some holdouts. The Puritan population distrusted the holiday, viewing it as just an excuse for their less pious neighbors to get drunk and party. That view had begun to change in New England by the 1860s thanks largely to an influx of Irish Catholic immigrants who had no such qualms with the holiday. That said, when Dickens arrived in 1867, children in Boston still had to go to school on Christmas Day, and neither Massachusetts nor New Hampshire recognized Christmas as a public holiday. It's believed that Dickens' readings of A Christmas Carol provided the last push Boston needed to fully get into the Christmas spirit. Residents warmed to the holiday thanks to the book's cozy descriptions of roaring fires and caroling children, but the real game-changer was the idea that Christmas wasn't just a day of revelry, but an opportunity for charity and goodwill. This shift in thinking led some New Englanders to reassess their position on the holiday, lest they be viewed as Scrooge-like themselves. Case in point, a Boston businessman was so moved by Dickens' reading of A Christmas Carol that he closed his factory on Christmas Day and sent a turkey to every one of his workers. As for the author, he enjoyed America a lot more the second time around, especially since the tour brought in $140,000 in profits, or nearly $2 million today. Unfortunately, Dickens was in poor health throughout the tour, suffering from flu-like symptoms, insomnia, and inflammation of the foot. On April 8, 1868, 
He circled back to Boston and gave the final performance of the tour. He closed by telling the audience, quote, In this brief life of ours, it is sad to do almost anything for the last time. Ladies and gentlemen, I beg most earnestly, most gratefully, and most affectionately to bid you, each and all, farewell. Two years later, Charles Dickens died at the age of 58. Many of his works are now considered classics of English literature. His most enduring stories have been adapted countless times for all sorts of mediums, but none more so than A Christmas Carol, the story that Dickens himself adapted for a listening audience all those years ago. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.